This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. We're going to start off with a slight peek behind the curtain. This is the second time we've started recording this episode, because the first time I forgot to press the record button. I, of course, for my sins, am Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. Don't hold that against me. He is the man behind the straw man. He's the man of straw. He is the scarecrow himself from the Wizard of Oz. He is, of course, Andrew Page Esquire. Mr. Page, good morning. Good morning. I feel as though we should at least be a little bit more eloquent because we've had a dress rehearsal now, which we never do, right? right. So now, in my now defense, we should be a bit sharper. In my defense, we only got a couple of minutes in. So it wasn't like we did the whole thing and had to do it again. So I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to throw myself under that much of the bus, but uh, I got clipped by the wing mirror of the bus. Let's put it, put it, put it that way. Um, sure. Mate, uh, I, I mentioned uh, Straw Man, of course, and, and the Man of Straw, the Scarecrow of Wizard of Oz. And I, I, I'm just, I'm wondering why you would want to, what, what was Scarecrow known as, or were known for in Wizard he, of Oz? He, he, I, he didn't have a brain. Oh, so you yeah. decided to name your yeah. business after Scarecrow. Yeah, yeah. So oh, it, okay. it makes a lot of sense. Okay. And, you know, once domain names are purchased <laughs> and business names are registered, you know, maybe- That's pot committed right would, there. <laughs> you, you might want to rethink, you know, in hindsight is twenty twenty is all I would say. Tell me but why the, you called the business straw man. The idea was, uh, <laughs> I've long said that the, the best way to improve an investment idea is to challenge it. Um, and I, I- I wanted somewhere where I could put my investment ideas out there, but other people could put theirs too. And hopefully we could have a fairly decent debate, challenge ideas and uh, find new ones. And that was, that was the idea. And I also thought that this was also in 2017 when the name was registered. And so you couldn't have something which actually described what the business was. It had to be like an Uber or a Fluber or something, you know, it had to be, had to be something kind of a little bit catchy and, I don't know. It felt like it made sense at the time, and but here we are. Here we <laughs> don't are. Don't question. Don't dig too deep. Is all I'll say. It's now called you, strawman.com, and just just go with that. If you do go to strawman.com, what are you what are you going to find there? You're going to find a bunch of people sharing ideas and hopefully challenging ideas in, in as private well. or in public. It's in private, and they're going to do it online. Okay. In a club right. type format. Okay. There you go. If yeah. you could turn that into like a forward slogan, I'd be happy to share it with our members. If you yeah, listeners, if you ever. Do come up with something. Private, I've got to count now. Private online investment club. Oh, there you go. Let's go with that. Yeah. You're welcome, you, listeners. Is, for the first you're, time my new, you're my new CMO. <laughs> <laughs> Chief what officer? It's not marketing, clearly. Uh, let's, uh, let's, should, we, should we answer some questions? Mm. All right, let's do that. Let's do it. Yep. Uh, we had, this is, I love this question, mate. So I'm going to show read it word for word. Uh, hello, incongruous cylinder people. It starts. <laughs> Our teacher, Mr. M, has been teaching us some economics through needs versus wants and having a go at the ASX share market game. Yes, Mm. it's very short term, but it gives us the chance to find out what it actually does. Fair enough. While Mm. we were doing this, one of our other teachers decided it was time to reduce her wants, in brackets coffee, and increase her needs, in brackets financial security. Tell you what, I love our teachers. She has saved enough to to start her investing. So we had a discussion about whether she should buy one company or an ETF, in brackets, risk versus reward, with a mix of diversification and human psychology. So these kids are pretty close. We decided that even though she doesn't like fishing, she should probably go the ETF route. She wants to do this, but she can only save a small amount per pay. But she has a Perler account, 
which gives her some free trades on sign-up and only $6.50 trades thereafter. We did an analysis on a range of ASX-listed ETFs, and our criteria were broad-based, low-fee, and a price that allows her to invest regularly. I will stop there and say that uh, the fishing reference is, of course, me saying buy an ETF and go fishing. So even though mm-hmm. your teacher doesn't like fishing, I do appreciate that she can do something else other than fish. That's fine with me. Although she, maybe she should try fishing. Fishing's good. Anyway, the kids say, we came up with the following based on this. Code IOZ, which is an ASX 200 ETF with a 0.05% management fee at about $30 per security. And BGBL, which is a global ETF with a 0.04% management fee and around $55 or so per security. We also came up with the NASDAQ 100 under the code NDQ, but we weren't sure because of the 0.48% management fee. What do you think, they say? Are we on the right track with our ideas or should we have considered something else? Thanks in advance for the non-personal advice. The 456 <laughs> class at, now bear with me kids, Katamatite, I'm going to assume this. Primary school. And they say in brackets, have fun saying that with a big <laughs> smiley face. It's K-A-T-A-M-A-T-I-T-E. Katamatite, uh, Katamatite, one of those. P.S. Last year, they say, we did give we did the ASX share market game. A few of us made squillions by hmm. buying two, 29M. I think it's 29 medals from memory. So Mr. M bought some for real. He's sad now, says the kid. But he's not giving up. <laughs> I love that. Thank you very much for the class of 456 at Katamatite Primary School. Thank you, Mr. M. And thank you to your other teacher who's um, letting you guys uh, effectively play along with her financial journey. Um, kids, you are, you are remarkably, remarkably lucky to have such wonderful teachers. In fact, uh, almost all teachers are wonderful. Uh, they do an amazing job of, of helping uh, people learn and develop and grow. And I think uh, we, we need to give our teachers more, uh, more kudos. Hey, if you're listening to this in class... Do me a favor. Give Mr. M a massive round of applause. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ram, what do you reckon? Oh, I'm just giving it a clap there. Uh, what do you reckon about their, their suggestion? Uh, should, should their teacher, who's giving up coffee, which is, by the way, its own sacrifice. Kids, you don't realize how hard it is to give up coffee yet. You'll learn. It's not easy. Uh, so it's a big, a big sacrifice. Uh, getting into investing, which I love. What do you reckon? Are these ETFs about where you, you would think, or would you do something else potentially? Yeah, no, hundred percent. No, there's nothing to criticize with that. I mean, we we could we could get really finicky and say, well, there's another one over here mm. which trying to say it's a slightly different index and there's a slightly different management. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, like, you know, it's sort of like you're at that point mm-hmm. where it's kind of like, as you said, low cost, broad based uh, ETF, boom, yep. easy, easy peasy. I like you when when you know we revisit these decisions in ten years. I'm sure. Mm you will know exactly what you should have done. Like the hindsight is, is 20 tiny. Yeah. But I'm sure amongst the available universe of, of ETFs with the criteria that has been outlined, hmm. like, like there's going to be such a small amount of differences to not be worthwhile. There are far more important things in life, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think there's, there's, I, I'm not going to bother getting um, critical in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form there. I do want to make two quick comments though. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't like the ASX game. And Mr. M's <laughs> learned it the hard way because it teaches it teaches yeah. the wrong. I know I'm repeating myself, but if those who didn't the hear kids that past know. episode, the kids know. the kids know it teaches the wrong lessons. Yep. It teaches you to shoot for the moon, and the person who wins shoots for the moon. They're the person I, who over got a month lucky. or two months. 
It's also the person who went to the casino and said, "I'm Wesley <laughs> right. Snipes." All went boom, yes. all on black, yes. right? And and then hey, it won. Oh, this is this is easy money. And it's, Wesley it's, Snipes is an actor that only old people know, just for the record. Sorry, <laughs> great actor, great movies. <laughs> Did he go to jail? Um, you might have. Oh, I don't know. Anyway. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not endorsing someone who's been cancelled, am I? <laughs> anyway, let's let's see it clear. Good choice. So, so I think, so I think, yes, that's that's why you've got to be careful with the, uh, the the game as it is structured. The other thing is too is touched on there, which is you hear a lot of old men with grey hairs saying that you know if only people didn't buy their avo on toast and you know cut off the morning coffee, they'd be really rich mm. and you know. These these teachers are not having their eighth investment property because of because of all the coffee that they're drinking. Now, obviously, it's always a good thing if you can be a little bit you know prudent with your with your expenditure and save a little bit for a rainy day. And we've discussed many many times before that you know a penny saved is a penny earned. And it's really when you want to look at what moves the dial for your long term wealth creation, it is the amount of money you save. It's more important than the returns you get. Yes, right? and the amount of time it's you've just, got to save it over. Yeah. Yeah. So like if, if, if uh, you know, do, do you want to be the kind of person who saves a, a dollar a year, but gets like a 15% <laughs> compound return or yeah, the person yeah. who saves, you know, a dollar a day and, and gets an 8% return? Like correct, I tell you correct. which one right now is going to retire which, with a lot more wealth. Yep. But it, it, it the, the reality is, is that, you know, there's also, mm. you've got to enjoy your life. And let's, let's, I did quick maths here. Let's say that you, you're buying a $3.50 coffee, every day at work yep. and you know, you're working 40, 40 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to save $700 extra a year, mm-hmm. right? Now that's $700 you didn't otherwise have. Yes. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's terrible, but let's not kid ourselves with the, when, you know, the average house in Australia is $1.2 million and interest rates are at like five, 6%, whatever. It's like, do you re- really, that's not a swing factor. So I, I, I'm, I'm willing to be dude, clear you, here. You're missing, you're missing the kids here. I'm so, I, look. What I'm saying to the kids is is that there are. If you want to be, you don't you don't want to be rich. By the way, you want to you want to be free. Yeah. And money is just a tool to to bring freedom. And mm-hmm. freedom is different for different people. So if freedom for you means having five yachts. Well, you might have to work and save a lot harder than 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 some someone else. But you know. All else being equal, yeah. all you need to do is live on two-minute noodles, never go and hang out with your friends, never go watch any movies, never buy any computer games, never buy any, you know, just wear a, wear a potato sack and you will be far wealthier than a lot of other, uh, other people when, when you hit 40. Um, you'll also be a miserable old miser and you will have let the better years of your life go by. So I, and this is not what you expect a finance person to say, but I guess what I'm trying to say here is balance is really, really important. Don't be the kind of person who money just slips through your fingers and you're buying every stupid thing and you know you don't need your yeah. 10th fidget spinner, right? Yeah. You just don't. Um, but <laughs> but you 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 do need to you do need to enjoy your life. And and I for one, and this is every it's a personal decision, I am not doing it without my coffee. <laughs> I'll be damned. I will die on that hill, right? Um yeah. Sorry, that's probably the wrong message, but but life is balanced. It's not you, you can go too far, even in the right direction. I think. Yes. Um, thank you, Ram. Uh, kids, you are on the right track. Uh, I will I will echo both of what Ram said. Uh, firstly, you know, live live a live an enjoyable life. Um, dying old and rich, you still die. So enjoy your life while you're going through it. But yeah. but but but. Your teacher is making some really good financial choices. And the idea of saying, hey, what can I do without to save a bit more money so that I can have that financial freedom a little bit earlier? 
If your teacher can retire two or three years earlier because she's put some money aside, I should be pretty happy with that. Now, I reckon your teacher probably loves doing what she's doing. I reckon she's probably going to teach for years. But having that freedom, as Andrew said, to make those choices, uh, that's what you really want. If you guys think about the things that you want right now, things you want to buy, the things you wish mum and dad would give you, um, that all comes at a cost, right? You've got to put some money aside and, and either earn some money or make some money to buy those things. If you can put money aside regularly, and by the way, here's the thing. Some, look around your classroom right now. Some of the kids, some of the other kids looking around, they're going to put some money aside. Not all of it, not to be miserable and not enjoy life. They're going to probably retire earlier than you are. And some of them are not. And it's up to you guys as to when you want to be able to enjoy your life and have the things that you like to have. To not have to worry about having to work. Some of your mums and dads worry about their jobs. Some of them worry about how they're going to pay some bills. And that's really, really sad. Uh, and it's not their fault. It's just life. Um, the world is uncertain and it's really difficult. And sometimes things are just tough. Sometimes you know you don't have those choices. If you do happen to lose your job, if you do want to buy that thing and you got a bit of extra money saved up, you're going to be in a much, much better place to deal with that. So the best thing you can give your future selves, it's hard to imagine being 15, right? Let alone 20 or 30 or maybe your parents' age, maybe even older, maybe your grandparents' age. Um, you'll get there one day, I promise you. Uh, Andrew and I were young people once, believe it or not. There was, there was a time when we were in year four, five and six. Uh, so just, yeah, look, enjoy your lives. Uh, take advantage of compounding when you can. Uh, and, and try and find a way to do a bit of both because you've got the one thing that we desperately wish we had, which is many, many, many more years ahead of you than we do. And that can be really, really powerful. Enjoy your life, make some really good choices and also save some money along the way as you get there. Uh, but Mr. M, thank you for sending the question through, kids. Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for your interest. Thanks for, uh, for letting us help you a little bit. Let us know how you go. Let us know uh, what your teacher decides. Uh, we'll have a, have a bit of a chat about it. Uh, mate, they asked, the kids also asked about the NASDAQ ETF, and the fee is meaningfully higher than some of the others. And so I said, yeah, should we include that or not? Um, kids, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I own some of those shares for what it's worth, the NASDAQ ETF. And I own them because I think some of the biggest companies that are in your lives and my life, some of the big technology companies, think about Netflix or Apple or Amazon or Facebook or Google or some of those companies, they're probably going to be the biggest and best companies still in 5 and 10 and 15 years' time. So that's kind of why I'm happy to say, look, I'll pay a bit more in fees because I think I'll get a bit more in returns. And that's kind of what it's about. You don't want to pay more fees for the sake of it, but if you can get a bit more by paying a bit more, then that might be worthwhile. So that's why I'm doing it. I'm not saying your teacher should necessarily do it. I reckon she's absolutely nailed the, or you guys have nailed for her, um, a really nice, really super broad, diversified, low cost starting point. I reckon you should absolutely start with that. If you wanted to, or she wanted to start with the NASDAQ ETF, I personally, I'm really okay with that. I think it's well and truly worth uh, having a go. If you think like I do, those companies are going to be the big winners of tomorrow, but there's no need to. You're not missing out necessarily by doing it. Certainly, you're keeping your fees low, which is the thing you can control. You can't control future share prices, but you can control how much you pay. So um, I have no problem with the with what your teacher's decided or what you've decided for her. If you want to add the NASDAQ or replace it, then go for it by all means. A really smart way. I love the fact you're paying low brokerage by going with... Um, something like Perla. Uh, I think that's a really, really cool idea. Um, kids, I'm going to throw in, you, you can close your ears now. I'm going to throw in for our other listeners um, an absolute plug uh, for a service that we run. It's called Motley Fool ETF Investor. And we actually give advice on the, a range of ETFs and the way to kind of put them in a portfolio. I'm not saying your teacher needs to do it. She's completely fine with what she's got. So I'm not selling it to her. But if there are other listeners who want uh, 29 bucks a year, it's just stupid cheap. Uh, we give uh, advice on which ETFs we think you should put together in a, you know, a a diversified ETF portfolio. 
It's just fool.com.au forward slash join dash ETF dash investor. So if anyone wants out there wants to do that, they can. Um, I'm not saying your teacher should do it, by the way, but it's, it's an option uh, for those who are looking to find out how to build an ETF-based portfolio. So a bit, of, a bit of a free plug for the Motley Fool. My apologies there, kids. But uh, hopefully you'll understand that's in the context of, of us trying to make a buck, but also give you guys some, some good advice as well. Again, thanks for, thanks for the question. Really, really, really appreciate it. Love that you're keen about it. Keep your investing interest up. Keep learning about compounding and make it work for you because you have so many years ahead of you. Uh, if you can start soon enough, maybe when you start working, I promise you your future self will thank you for it. I've got to give the um, the always interesting factoid that Warren Buffett made ninety nine percent of his money after the <laughs> age of fifty. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Be- because just be- actually, his his a- his average annual returns, mm-hmm. I think, slightly low. In fact, mm-hmm. not not insignificantly lower in that Correct. later part because he's just dealing with such bigger sums of money. But that is the power of of sort of compounding. Mm-hmm. And and Buffett in his um, in the book Snowball jokes, I think that like if he he's, he started like really early, like uh, yeah, eleven, I think. 12. In eleven, yep. in eleven, he said, oh, "If only I'd started a few years earlier, I would have made a lot more money." <laughs> and again, it's sort of like the maths yeah. will mess with your brain uh, in how compounding kind of works. Yeah. It's sort of like you know, it's like looking at doubling. Talk, mm-hmm. Ask your ask your math teacher about the 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 uh, the, the chess uh, problem, mm-hmm. you know, where you you put a grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard and double it. You know, it gets to astronomically large numbers, but of yeah. course, you know that the it's it's on the sixty how many squares on there sixty third square that you've only got half of the total, yeah. right? Like it's like the last one doubles, and in fact, everything that came before it is is bigger than that one. It just it, it is really crazy. Is what the, the the TLDR, as the kids say, on this is uh, start early, spend less than what you earn, mm-hmm. and invest in assets that compound, and be, happy. be very happy. Yeah, live a, live a happy life. Um, so love it. Thank yeah. you, kids. Really appreciate it. Mate, let's move on to a question from Willow, who um, sent me a message this morning saying, is it too late to send a mailbag question? I said, oh, I could probably squeeze you in. Uh, Willow mm-hmm. says, I see South32 are doing buybacks. Are there any circumstances in which a buyback is anything other than a positive sign? By definition, if a company is buying back stock, then they think that's their best use of the capital they have. The only risk, I suppose, is if management are a pack of drongos and are paying too much. But I don't see that being the case with South 32. I'm keen on your thoughts here, gents, and keep up the awesome material on the podcast emitter from Willow. <laughs> uh, what do you recommend? Are there, are, there, are there other, I mean, obviously management overpaying is the big one. Are there any other red flags with stock buybacks? Sometimes you see it, it is nothing but a cynical ploy to try and get some support for the share price yeah um, few ones that are announced you know, and never activated we're going to have a, we're going to give, give authorization for the company to buy back shares over the next 12 months oh that's good they're yeah. going to buy back shares and they never quite do it's like no that never was just, do it yeah yeah so so that is the big one and and if if shares are not good mm. value mm. not in reference because they used to be higher or lower if they're on a very objective conservative estimate of true fair intrinsic value and they are below that that is one box ticked but mm. you still don't do it you still don't do it <laughs> that's right it's, it's it's in a very if, if that box isn't ticked then you definitely don't do it. Yeah. But the the next question is and this is this is a lesson for all of us in in investing in general is is opportunity cost because mm. your own shares aren't the only investment that you have available to you. In fact, there's a whole wide world of investments. Now, one of the great things about investing, well, sorry, one of the great things about being a business 
and particularly a business that has any any like brand value or or competitive advantage mm. is that you can take raw materials and get incredible returns on investments, returns on equity, return on whatever benchmark you want to you want to do. So mm. Buffett's often talked about how they don't buy uh, uh, don't do dividends and the rest of it. it's like cuz I'm getting 20% per year on on my <laughs> return. So there's the hurdle mm. rate, right? Like I need to I need to I need to um, – uh, there will come a day where he's just like, I can't do it anymore or his successors won't be able to do it anymore and then a dividend will be mm. paid. Um, so so I think that's that's the situation. I, I think um, uh, uh, don't automatically see it as a good sign. But if, if those two considerations – there's no better investment you can make within the business to launch a new product, to mm -hmm. go into a new geography – to even buy other assets, maybe they're unrelated, just to hold onto the balance sheet, you know, and your uh, and your shares um, are reasonable value. Then, mm. then okay, things things will add up. Other than that, don't do it. Yeah, nice. Um, are there? Or can I? Sorry, yeah, sorry, no, sorry, no. sorry. One more thing. One more thing. It may be that you are, have a bunch of franking credits yes, as well correct. from past tax paid. Now, if that is the case, I would argue very strongly to the board. It's like, mm -hmm. give me a dividend instead. Just give me the yep. cash. I mean, yep. maybe shares are so stupidly cheap that you you, yeah. you you can do it. But if that's not the case and it's like a line ball. And remember, valuation is a dark art, even for those that are on the inside of the business. <laughs> you know, and, and franking credits are only of value to the shareholders. Mm -hmm. They're of zero value to the company. Yeah. And the only way you can give them to shareholders is by paying a dividend. So that's just a, a third consideration. Like it. Um, yes, I tend to agree. Um, I don't think South 32 uh, boards a pack of drongos, but I also don't think, as we've said before, I don't. I know almost nothing about the South 32 boards. So this is not a at all a, a slant or a, or a kind of you know implied criticism of them. Uh, I don't reckon most uh, ASX, ASX board directors have a very good view on valuation or a very good feel for it. Mm. So generally, quite honestly. Any company doing a buyback, I'm kind of inherently skeptical. I don't think their motivations are wrong, but I don't always necessarily trust their valuation skills. So what I would do is probably, well, I'm, by the way, I'm assuming I know better than them. I, I hope I probably do because it is for a quid, but maybe I don't. I would be doing my own assessment of value and saying, hey, do I think the current share price is cheap? Now, if you have done the work and you think that's true, then you should be happy they're buying back shares. If you would buy shares, then you should be happy with the board's buying shares. That, that makes perfect sense. Notwithstanding the opportunity cost Andrew mentioned, if they've got excess cash, you're saying, gee, I, I'd buy shares at the current price, then the board should want to too. If you wouldn't buy shares at the current price, the board shouldn't want to. And so that should be the starting point. But don't assume, again, there's not, not saying this out there to a, a terrible or, or drongos to use your word, Willow, but um, don't assume they, they necessarily know capital allocation any better than the rest of us, or particularly if you made any, spend any time doing it. Um, it can just be, hey, we've got excess cash, let's buy back some shares because it might boost the share price or it might push earnings per share up, which are both true. Um, but if you're buying at too high a price, it's a problem. I will say a couple of things. Firstly, uh, the South 32 share price is as low as it's been in a long time. Uh, I had some, had it up before and I clicked away from it. Uh, it's the lowest it's been for a year. Um, it's been low, it was lower before that, by the way. So you might, might want to ask yourself, were they buying back shares when it was even lower? If not, why are they doing it now? Uh, they do it just because they want to get the share price back up, possibly. Uh, so, you know, are there bad reasons to do it? Yes, because you're trying to get the share price up. Uh, so be be careful there. Um, Am I reading this right, no, mate? I'm sorry, I had to open up the latest buyback. Appendix 3E for the wonks. Mm -hmm. um, total consideration paid or payable for the shares before the previous day, mm -hmm. $2.4 billion. So they bought back that in shares. 
Wow. Mm. That's you pretty hope, significant. You hope right. Well, it's, a, it's about uh, 10% of the market, 15% of the market cap. Yeah, because there's $15 billion yeah. market cap. Yeah. So do they have any... So the other thing I would look for too is is the um, capital profile. In other words, mm. like how much debt do they have? Yeah. Because there, there's uh, the debt has a role to play. Don't don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if if I'm just so unfamiliar with the business, I don't know. No, but I if, don't know. if there was um, any material kind of debt there, mm-hmm. I would sort of be tempted, especially when you're playing with this. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. I have to look at this a bit closer. But it, you would want to maybe look at de-risking the business a yeah. little bit as yeah, well. Correct. Another another consideration there. Uh, probably two billion dollars of long-term debt, so not not inconsequential, but not enormous given the hmm. given the total size of the business. Yeah, not given. Yeah, given that. Make some. Let's. Uh, okay. Wow. Well, anyway, it's just I'm I'm curious to dig into this a little bit more now. It's just it's just fascinating. <laughs> that, that is so often when you see these buybacks, you're just like, oh wow, and you look at as you say, it's like eight hundred thousand dollars bought back on a you know, yeah, eight hundred million dollar company. It's like oh, why yeah. why bother? Guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, last thought for me, by the way, is most buybacks in my experience tend to be rubbish. Most most yeah. boards actually get it wrong. It's not even a line ball decision. Um, they tend to buy back at bad bad times. So I would be honestly, I'm inherently skeptical, uh, not of their motivations necessarily, though that's probably worth being skeptical about, but also just their ability to do it at genuinely good prices. Um, let's go to a question from Jeff who says, "Hi Scott and Andrew, thanks so much for the podcasts. I especially enjoy the coaching on the emotional aspects of investing, particularly when markets are in turmoil." which is the best time to buy. In a recent episode, Ram mentioned that during these times, he tries to think about how much his future self will regret not buying while the good companies are cheap. Thanks to this type of coaching, I too have managed to continue buying when markets are down. Nice work, Jeff. But I really struggle working out what to buy during these times of extreme uncertainty. For instance, during the COVID crash, I was torn between buying the most beaten down stocks on my watch list which at the time he says seem to have a high risk of going under versus the stocks that have been less affected, but are not as cheap, relatively speaking. Because of this, I ended up mostly buying my favorite index ETFs because I felt that eliminated the risk of all of my picks going to zero. I didn't do badly, but I could have done a lot better. How do you think about what to buy in times of turmoil? Thanks again from Jeff. Mm. What do you recommend? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I love it. I love uh, the sentiment and the intention. There's, there's nothing to sort of argue against there. Mm-hmm. The only the only thing I would add, and we all do it right, is is that we look at cheapness too often as a function of where shares were true, true. versus where they are now, right? And so um, it may be that some of these companies were just stupidly priced and they've mm-hmm. fallen 60%, but now they're still – not yeah, cheap. Yeah. And there might be a company that's only fallen 5%, but it was already <laughs> super cheap and now it's so yeah, so exactly. so that the the idea of value is always point. needs to be made in the context of, you know, what what is the current price look like relative to all future cash flows of the business? The very wonkish way of sort of saying it, but that's kind of what it is and and you you need to look at it through that lens. Um, but if that is the lens you're looking through, mm. then that that is also the 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 one that makes the decision for you. So the market has fallen. Mm. You've got this cash, just which is the cheapest. Yep. Well, well maybe, maybe that's not true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, other, the other thing you have to do is it's sort of, um, again, to be a little nerdish, is it, there's a difference between sort of return potential and then what you might call a risk-adjusted return potential. Mm. 
So there's something that's probably like a, a soul pats or you know a CSL or something. Right. It's like right. very very reliable. Say they'll they'll be around for a long time, um, uh, but they're never they're never going to like 10x in in three years, right? Um, there are other companies that have return potential is fantastic, but there's just a lot more risk in there. And in other words, like, they, they, they could might, triple, they could go to zero. They could go to zero, or yep. they could drop yep. in half, which yep. is still really bad, you know. And yep. and so, uh, yeah, that's the only other wrinkle. So tr- there's no there's no precise. Well, there are formulas, but I wouldn't take them too seriously. Oh, yeah. But there, <laughs> you know, there's no precise way of knowing this because you can't know the future, which I think a lot of the uh, economy. A, a, the financial economists, um, mathematicians, sort mm-hmm. of all, all mm-hmm. tend to miss there. Yes. But look at it. Look at it in, in the way that a normal, sensible person would. It's just like, what's the return? What's the mm-hmm. value of mm-hmm. this? Let me contrast that against how risky I think it is, yeah. and then I'm just going to buy whatever I think is the best bet on through that lens. And and don't forget, you, you, it's a lot of thumb sucking with all of that. But it doesn't have to be an all or, or nothing bet. If you've like, just make up a round number here, if there's ten thousand dollars that you've got to invest, maybe you put thirty percent towards something that has a better return potential, but a bit of extra excess risk, and and the rest into something that's mm-hmm. not as not as exciting, but a lot lower risk, or whatever balance that you feel is appropriate. You yep. can shift things around in, in that kind of way. And as I said before, you're guaranteed to, with the benefit of hindsight, realize, well, I should have just <laughs> put it all in that. <laughs> but you can't know, you you won't know, and and that's still a pretty sensible way of of playing things, and and always with an eye to the downside. I think it's really good advice, Jeff. I um I would. It's hard, right? Um, I'm a sucker for quality, which sounds like it's a humble brag, but it's not really. I I don't. I tend to find businesses that I think have a higher than average degree of longevity, and I won't get the same deals for those. So, uh, during the GFC, I bought lots of Berkshire Hathaway, for example back a million years ago. And again, that's not a humble brag either. There was stuff that was down much more than that, but I was like, hey, I get a chance to buy Berkshire cheap. Why wouldn't I? So kind of that's my personal bias. I tend to go that direction. Um, I was probably buying salt hats during the uh, during the uh, uh, the COVID crash. I think I can't actually remember what I bought during the COVID crash. And I was buying, but I can't remember exactly what it was. I could probably look it up. Um, so there's that. I think it's, um, it's hard, right? Look, I think if, if there's a chance of going to zero, then then you probably don't want to. Well, there's a reasonable. Everything's got a chance of going to zero under the wrong circumstances, right? But I don't think I don't think the crash is the time to say, "Hey, I'm going to abandon good investing practice and just swing at the fences." Something's down ninety five percent because maybe if it comes back, I'll make a squillion. Uh, I do think you should absolutely look, as Ram said, about the future value of these things. First thing I would do is I would eliminate anything that has um, existential risk. So was you know I, I pick a company I don't know um, was Woolies ever going to zero? No. Were there others that had a truckload of debt and uncertain customer futures and might have gone to zero? Yeah. Um, Flight Center and Webjet. I owned Webjet at the time. I don't own it anymore. Um, Those two companies had to double their share count to stay in business. Now, didn't go to zero, so that's okay. But that's a really significant chunk of change. Corporate travel, on the other hand, which I do own, didn't issue any more shares. So there's very different... and, And the reason was corporate travel had the cash. Webjet and Flight Center didn't have the cash to make it through a period of shutdown. So there was very, very, very different experiences for those companies. Would I have done better by one or the other when they fell to maximum? Probably. But was there a chance those companies couldn't have raised capital or had to raise capital even more dilutive levels? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a case of you know, just being a little bit careful. Um, I'd say Ramsify, a little bit of both. Spread your money around. But, uh, but think about the future value of these businesses over time. Uh, the other thing, by the way, is if you're not a... Like I'm a long-term shareholder. I, I like to hold for years and years and years if I can. So I would I would... 
if you're buying if you're buying something that's down a lot, but it's not a very good quality business, then know that you're playing a shorter term game. Not short term, but shorter term. If you're going to buy, I don't know, um, some you know kind of okay moderate but business out eighty percent. When it comes back up a media a decent way, you're going to say, well, do I want to hold this forever? Probably not. So then you want to be honest with yourself enough to say, okay, it's done. The thesis played it. I bought it simply because the shares were cheap. Now they're not cheap. I'm selling. And you have to take that approach. For my approach, I'm like, you know what? I want to own, I use Solpats. I want to own Solpats for decades. So if I get a chance, and, and because I think it's going to be a comp, long-term market-beating compounder over decades, and that's where my returns are going to come from. So if I get a chance to buy that a bit cheaper than usual, I'm going to because I want to hold it for that long and that's going to really pay off over the super long-term if I'm right about the business's potential. So for me, because I'm a long-term investor, I want to hold it for that long. That's what I'm going to do with it. Uh, but that's you, know, you, you forego the opportunity for larger, shorter to medium-term gains in doing so. Nice. Hey, yeah, Jared asks, oh, he says, good morning, MF team. I'd like, oh, sorry. I'd like to submit a question to the mailbag. He has. Hi, Scott and Andrew. There is a small but increasing trend of companies trialing or considering a four-day work week. Generally, this includes no change to your income but your working week reduces from five to four days on the assumption there is no reduction in productivity and employees receive a better work-life balance. Sounds pretty good, but I'm unconvinced, says Jared. There may be parts of the workforce this may be workable for, but as one example, any industry that has frontline or customer-facing staff, any reduction in hours will need to be made up by someone else, which means an overall increase in wages. In this example, a business or organization would spend an extra 20% in wages to cover the full five days. And I doubt it would come with a 20% increase in productivity. For the record, I'm not a grumpy employer resisting change. I'm an employee who manages staff. And I'm a big supporter of flexible and hybrid working. And believe the days of bums on seats five days a week in the office are outdated. So I'm putting this discussion topic out there to seek your views, both positive and negative, on the four-day work week. Cheers, Jared. What do you reckon, Ram? A boondoggle or a boost for uh, the work-life balance? I'm going to go with my usual. It depends. Um, <laughs> Come on, how's that well, fence going for you? It it just does. Like here's <laughs> the thing. I I think that the at the end of the day, you as an employer, as a business owner, as someone who's managing staff, you just want to. And I'm going to use this horrible term here, but you want to get the the best return out of your human capital. Yep. Yep. And uh, you do, right? Like you're, 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 as a business, you're trying to optimize costs. And, and also let's, I think too often people think businesses like make money by tricking people. <laughs> there are some businesses <laughs> that do that. I hate that, but really you, you make money by creating value. Yep. Right. So there's the, there's sort of like the top of the income statement. And, and as you go down the line item there, you know, you, you may find that you can actually get far better efficient, more productivity, more efficient use of your human capital by just being nice, right? Like <laughs> not because you're altruistic, yeah. but because you will find that your workforce loves being mm. there. They're on the mission. There's a great culture. They feel supported. They're going to do what they need to, to get the work done. And they're going to be happy, engaged employees. And now we all love to be compensated for our time and, and money mm. is, is obvious that, you know, the, the way that we do that. But I think you'll find in a gazillion studies have sort of shown that it's all the other non-financial things that make a big difference as well. I look yeah. back with a lot of fondness on some jobs that, that I had before, and it was the people I worked with and the cultures there that made it that way. And there are other jobs where I got paid 
significantly better, but I hate mm. it. And I was just, you know, ready to hit my head against the wall at any chance <laughs> that, 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 I, that I could. So I, I, I would say, and here's the other reality, and you'll know this, Jared, if someone's disengaged and they're not happy to be there, whether or not you make them do five days or not, yeah. they're going to, the second your back is turned, they're just going to be opening up solitaire right. and playing. That's you know, right. it's just, it is, it is, it is, you, you can't, you can, unless you're going to re- like use a literal whip or something, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and have someone up the front of the office beating a drum that, you know, it's just like, like in the galley type sort of fashion, it's, <laughs> it's not going to work. So I yep. would, now that that's for a certain kind of workforce, for, for particularly people yep. in the knowledge economy and that kind of stuff where it's like, frankly, I mean, I don't really have any staff, but, but if I, if, if someone wanted to do some work for me, and they said, oh, but I want to work from Bali and I only want to work after <laughs> nine o'clock. I don't, you do, I don't care. The only thing I care is that when the, the, the deliverables need to be delivered, they're delivered and they're delivered well. 100%. And I feel as though I'm getting a good return on, on the money that I spent. Mm-hmm. However you do that, you do you, I, I could not care less, yep. right? And I've got that in the kind of business that I have. But if I'm running a retail store and I need someone there, well, that's, it's obviously not doable, which is why I say it, it, it depends. But I guess I guess I've I know of circumstances where it's worked wonderfully well. I know of other cir- circumstances where people have just sort of taken the Mickey and it's it's not produced any any. So it, it's got to be too many, especially big companies. I think they do it because things sound good, you know. And it's like, oh, look how supportive we are of this and that, and you know. And it's just like at the end of the day, everyone's just miserable and looking on LinkedIn for for in seek for jobs <laughs> any any chance that they get. So you've yeah. got to if you're too too many managers talk about culture and all of this stuff. Like you've got to take it serious. And I think there is huge return turns on quote unquote investment for those that yeah. that get it right. Yeah. Um I don't know, I'm rambling at this point. What what do you think? Um I, so I'll, I'll try and cover a couple of mini thoughts and we'll move on. Um first thing is that we would have had this question when someone proposed moving from a six day week to a five day week. Uh and I think it's also true to say over that period of time the uh, workforce hasn't been particularly unproductive. Notwithstanding Friday's comments about productivity, uh, we didn't go to hell in a handbasket. We went from six days to five. Now, there is a point at which, you know, five days to one to half a day to, to one hour a week. At some point, you're absolutely right. Productivity falls off a cliff. So, uh, but uh, we are all as humans wired to believe the status quo is right and therefore any change to the status quo therefore needs to be justified. Um, we, again, we would have the same chat as going from six to five. Uh, second one is, I think you're right, Ram. There's an old line about, uh, half joke about, you know, what if we train them and they leave? And the other guy says, well, what if we don't train them and they stay? It's kind of the same with, with this sort of stuff. And you've already mentioned that, mate. If, you know, it's like, well, what, what, if, what if my staff work from home, they slack off? It's like, well, if they're going to slack off at home, they're going to slack off at work. And you've got yep. the wrong people. Yep. Again, not in every job. And, and you're absolutely right, Jared. In a, in a frontline job, you need to be there. You just need to be at, you know, at the coalface. And that's where the productivity comes from. Hard to justify someone at, at working at checkout and because it's a tr- very transactional thing. Nothing wrong with checkout workers. Um, if you're working there, you know, swiping the stuff, you're not going to swipe 25% faster because you get an extra day off a week. So it's very, very hard to make that case, quite honestly. We could say make it a, 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 a four-day week and pay them more. That absolutely would. That, that comes absolutely with extra cost and absolutely, in my view, um, a, a decrease in productivity per per hour worked and per dollar spent because those they just can't scan twenty five percent faster for those four days to make up the difference. Just, just and I've been there, I've done it. That, that is mm. that is absolutely true. The flip side is um, you're in a war for talent, and and the question is going to come down just like working from home, which I'll get to in a sec. 
um, you know, do, do you want to work, do work from home? Whether it's right or wrong, the best company is going to offer it and the best employees are going to work for the companies that offer it. So there is an element of, you know, choose not to if you don't want to, but just be careful about what you wish for because you may be stuck with the people who ha have to work five days because they can't get the job to work for, in which case you're stuck with a second-rate workforce because you're making them work five days a week. So there, there is a there is a trade-off with, with costs and benefits. Um, last one to finish off is a slight tangent. I had a whole lot of people uh, today on Twitter, uh, Thursday, um, now it's, this has been broadcast on Sunday, but on Thursday, uh, when I mentioned the productivity declines that we talked about on Friday, said, do you reckon it's work from home? It must be work from home because people aren't working as hard. That's why productivity's down. Uh, and and I, I think with hmm. absolute respect for those people, they are they have an answer looking for a, looking for a problem. They decided work from home is bad. And they say, ha ha, now I've got, finally got evidence. The reality is that if you take the last quarter, so the June quarter, versus the same period a year ago, there are more people now who have been going back to the office in that quarter than there were a year ago. In other words, there were more people working from home 12 months ago. And while not everyone's going back to the office five days a week, there is less work from home now than there was a year ago. In other words, if work from home was a problem, going back to the office should have fixed productivity. It should be going <laughs> up now because they've gone back to the office, right? And people go, oh, well, that doesn't suit my preconceptions, did it? Now, I'm not saying you have those preconceptions, Jared. I'm just making the point that you need to be a little bit careful when it, and this is, I shouldn't even, well, I'll make it about this because hopefully it's a teachable moment, as the kids say, um, or the, maybe the teachers say. Um, just be careful with any of these things that you don't start with a preconception of, this is what I believe. Can I find evidence to support it or can I argue from that perspective? Not Again, you're not saying that necessarily, Jared. Um, I'm just, I guess I'm just making the case that if you're already saying, oh, four days coming, right, because uh, this, if you've decided first, rather than gathering the data first, the evidence first, um, you do run the risk of, of maybe misleading yourself a little bit. I have no strong view. Um, I would suspect that if you gave people some reasonable but specific KPIs over the course of their working year and gave them four days to do the work, most people would be almost as productive in four days as five because I'm going to get done by the end of the week. I take the Motley Fool. We give a one recommendation a month. We, in one of our services, Motley Fool Share Advisor, we do a weekly update. We do our research. Uh, if I had to get all that done in four days, because I was going, I had a long weekend, I was going on holidays on the Friday, I get it all done early so I could take the day off, right? Over time, if that was, you know, do I think the Motley Fool would be as productive? Yeah, almost. Probably not. Uh, almost, almost, they're almost inevitably leakage by definition. But if we had to jam mm. five days worth of output in a four, and there was no change to staffing or expectations, I, absolutely. We, now, it, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't change productivity in terms of cost because I'd be paid the same amount of money. But if the boss said, look, Scott, you work four days a week, but you can do everything you're doing now, including this podcast and everything else, and get it done by Thursday rather than Friday, and I could choose to do that, I would take it, yeah. Would I do less? Maybe I might do a little bit less research in my spare time. But I also might say, I'm not going to, maybe I'll spend a little bit of time, less time on Facebook because, you know, on Monday afternoon when I'm kind of after lunch because I've got this stuff done, I've only got three days to do it rather than four. Um, as long as the KPI is held for any any output-based worker, I, I think you would find there'd be no meaningful reduction. There'd be a reduction. I'm almost sure there's there's, there's a leakage, right? There's going to be. Um, but I would I would suggest most of the things that need to get done would still get done. By the way, you would know this, Jared, if you're managing people, how much busy work gets created because there's time to do it. How much stuff? <laughs> if we had to prioritize, if I had to say, do you know right, there's a name? There's a name for that. It's called Simpsons Rule. I right. Think. Okay. Tell me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we just that, that uh, you know, I think it's more aimed at bureaucracy, but a right. bureaucracy will fill any budget and time a lot of time. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. And it's 100% <laughs> true. I, yeah. I've said, uh, we, uh, our boss, Bruce Jackson, um, you, you know, he, he, 
you're talking about scarcity and, and and being forced to focus on stuff. And I, from that, I've kind of taken this this kind of axiom that that scarcity is a wonderful resource because it makes you prioritize. And so, yeah, if you, I had four days to do the work, would I do the thing that was the fifth most important thing? Probably not. And if that fifth most important thing was not any real value, and I was happier as an employee and probably more productive, maybe less likely to take sick leave. And frankly, I'd get some stuff done on the Friday that I do during the week because. I've got no other time to do it during the work week, so I'll drop the car off to the mechanic and I'll go and get my haircut. Not well, I don't have hair, but if I did have hair, I'd get my haircut. Um, you tell me, I'm actually worth more money than the employer. I don't smoke and I don't have haircuts. I'm already, I'm already more productive than anybody else. Um, but you know what I mean? It, you know that you do that stuff on that day uh, potentially. So I am not convinced it's a terrible thing. Um, I would imagine, on average, if you are a high performance business and you hired high performance people, and and that was a hiring and retention perk. I don't know. I, I would actually bet you're probably more competitively advantaged than if you didn't offer it personally. I, I think, you know, if I was the motley fool and I, I was controlling the purse strings, would I do it? Maybe not. Would I consider it? Absolutely. If I, if I could get and keep the best quality people because of that extra work perk and said, guys, here's the deal. Same output, but you only have to kind of work four days a week. What do you reckon? They said, yes. And I could manage that work output and make sure it happened. I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, mm. again, very specific example, very specific circumstance. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Make time. James asks, gentlemen, thanks as always for this out- outperforming podcast. There you go. And it's an alpha giving- right there. Well I'm, I'm, well, I'm thinking if it depends what the benchmark is, doesn't it? <laughs> as always. Uh, <laughs> Compared yes. to what is the question you should always ask. <laughs> and for not giving out personal advice, he says, which I know is the case for the question below. For someone who is looking to dollar cost average into low cost diversified ETFs over 20 to 30 years, do you think the risk adjusted return? So you already anticipated your, your comment, Ram. You do you think the risk adjusted return is better for a US market ETF or a global ETF. And good luck. Good on him. He hasn't even included the tickers. He's listed the individual ETFs. He said, US market ETF in brackets, e.g. Vanguard, US total market shares index, or a global market ETF, e.g. Vanguard, MSCI index, international shares ETF. Tickers be damned, says James. And James, you are speaking my language. While I'm grappling, what I'm grappling with is this. On one hand, my assumption is the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ will remain the most attractive market for the world's best companies to list on regardless of where those companies originate. And therefore, investing in a global ETF will reduce my long-term returns by holding a lower quality basket of companies after the inclusion of non-US businesses. No offense meant, he says, to other countries, but Australia's strong market performance compared to the US is a remarkable outlier. But, he says, what if my assumption is wrong? And in the long term, more of the world's best companies list themselves on other exchanges. I can't see it happening, but I'm a mere simple simian. So what do I know? <laughs> in that scenario, would it not be safer on a risk-adjusted basis to have been dollar-cost averaging into a global index, which will rebalance over time to include higher-quality non-US companies? Or is this all just trimming around the edges and should I just move on instead of trying to optimise for slightly better returns? Looking forward to your thoughts and rants. Thanks again and full on, James. What say you, Mr. Page? I Actually, I think that's right. There's so much... I, particularly as a someone outside the US, I think we look at some of the craziness that goes on there and just think, oh my God, it's the end of empire, right? It's the, it's the final decades of the Roman empire kind of, and it's probably a lot of truth to that, but there is something magical about the US and mm. they are, it's no accident, I don't think that the biggest 
and arguably best companies in the world there and certainly the most innovative companies mm. in the world there. Look at Europe, right? Europe's developed, Western Europe, mm-hmm. um, very rich. Yeah. Name me a big technology company. There's a few of them. Yeah. You know the big European companies are all luxury brands. They are, LVMH among others. Yeah, right? Like, they're, they're, but they're not, they're not, it's not the center of AI. It's not the center of robotics. It's not the center of, you know, SaaS or, and again, exceptions to the rule. I, I know there are, but, you know, people in glass houses as well. Same with Australia. Yeah. What have we done? Afterpay was our big breakthrough and they, they got taken out. And actually Atlassian probably is, is, is worth mentioning as well, but mm-hmm. not really. I mean, we, we, all we do is dig rocks out of the ground and then flip houses amongst ourselves. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, don't get me started. Yeah. So what is it? I think the US mm. has very good rules. They, they allow people to go bankrupt really easily. It's a good thing, right? They let you fail. So there's, there's less impediment to, for entrepreneurs and less panel, less impediment to start, less penalty to fail. Mm. I think that's really smart, actually, what, what they do. There's a whole bunch of other stuff they get really wrong. But on, on that front, <laughs> I, think, I think they get it. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they do get it right. It's also the world's most developed and in many ways the best capital market as well. Mm. So they attract all the money. And there's certain network effects that I think are at play there as well, that if, you have got, if you're someone with any kind of talent in those fields and you ask them where would you want to work, Silicon Valley. Thank you. Like, no, yeah. I, don't have to, I have to think about that for like 0.3 of a microsecond. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that's where I want to work yeah. because that's where all the other smart people want to work. That's where all the money is. That's where all the, um, you know, the um, infrastructure, for want of a better word, is for that kind of stuff. Mm. And although the US is, is uh, certainly waning, I so, say, you know, back in, back in the 1940s, I think it was like, 40% of global GDP. Now it's, depending on how you measure, I think it's about 20% or so. So, so there's, a, there's a, you know, the, the US is sort of on the other side of the bell curve in terms of its empire. But in terms of that, in terms of its ability to attract talent, to, to have the really great um, support for capitalistic endeavors, it's hard to beat. And, and just more generally, I think I need to, Actually, I've been meaning to this for ages. Actually, do some research on it, but I think global ETFs tend to underperform what's happened in the US um, over time. Is is my anecdotal observation? I think that the, the evidence will will bear that out. Mm. Um, and we've talked before on this pod. I think it was the the Q and A pod too of just how disconnected the China exposed ETFs are from the from. The ascent. I mean, the, there's no denying the ascent of China from a GDP perspective. Yeah, right. From an investment perspective, it's been okay, <laughs> but not not what you'd expect, right? And why is that? Well, the structure, the political system, the the business environment, all of these kinds of things. And I I just don't see that changing. So I I I think you, there's plenty of. Um, Investment bankers and financial planners out there will tell you that you need global exposure because I don't yep. know, you just do. Yep. Um, it's just sort of this this thing. Just just trust me, bro. On it, I, I I've yet to see any good evidence <laughs> for it. Yep. Go 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 the US, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bit of bit of I say in Aussie, you got the home field advantage here. So the vast bulk of my money is here because I'm it's my pond. I know it better than 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 other ponds. But yep. but if I'm not in Australia for anything else and I've got ETFs exposure, it, it it's for the US. Yeah, I uh, I can't strongly disagree with that, mate. I, I will say that by evidence of what I'm actually doing, 
Uh, I've bought a, I own shares in a NASDAQ ETF and I own shares in the Vanguard Global ETF, uh, which is the one actually that you're asking about, James. Um, so I'm kind of got a dog in both fights. I think I also have a US total market for my young bloke, but it's small and in his own account. So I've got a, you know, I've conflicted all over the place and I've taken various approaches. Um, I, <laughs> it's, it's kind of philosophical at one level. You know, if you're buying broad-based, low-cost diversified index funds, then anytime you choose not to follow that logic by making active decisions, you are kind of stepping a little bit further away. Not that's a bad thing, just, just be mindful of what you're doing. So if I think global capitalism will, capitalism will be good and value will be created and therefore owning a broadly based, diversified, low-cost index fund exposure to it, whatever that it is, then the broader and less selective I am, the more I'm going to get the average return. So... Uh, you know, if I own only Australia, I'm foregoing the rest of the world. If I own only US, I'm foregoing the rest of the world. Now, if I say, well, actually, I just want the US, I'm saying I am actively selecting the the US as an active choice, which goes at least, you know, purely theoretically against the idea of a low-cost passive fund. Anytime, anytime you're not being absolutely passive by, by making a decision to choose a subset, you are moving away from that broad idea. So I think that that's the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say, though, for, for all of that is the US is 60% of the world's capital markets. Frankly, a lot of the companies that are in Europe uh, and, the U- and the UK are listed secondarily on the US markets anyway. So you're kind of getting some exposure to that regardless. Um, so there's kind of, you know, there's and the size of those, relatively speaking, is not particularly large. I will say, Ram, I, I kind of take your point too, by the way. And we've got to be a little bit careful Again, to play too thematically, you know, if you start to say, well, it's going to be tech that's going to win. We had the question from the kids, you know, is tech going to win? Okay, well, I want tech. You're saying, well, okay, I think tech's going to be better over the long term. Now, I tend to think that's going to be true, but am I so sure that I want to bet on it? That's a whole different thing. Um, you already mentioned, Ram, that the, the, the company, so Novo Nordisk is the largest European company by market cap out of Denmark. Of the, of the next four, two, four, and five others, luxury brands, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, L'Oreal is fourth, and Hermes or Hermes is fifth. In between, there's ASML, which is a, um, a hardware, software, computer chip business. Uh, mm. Then you have got Accenture, the consulting mob, SAP, the big enterprise resource planning business. Total Energies, which I've never heard of, but I imagine it's a rebranded energy business. Dior, number nine, again to Ram's point, and Process out of Netherlands is <laughs> ten. Uh, you ask yourself, you know, are those companies going to be long-term compounders at? An extraordinary high rate. I don't know. And so that's the thing. I, because I don't know, I don't know. Um, I've gone global uh, X Australia because I figure that's the complement to my Australian holdings. So I've just done that because I think it is the broadest way to go and I don't have to make those decisions. But I also own the NASDAQ ETF. So I, I'm, I'm also making an active bet in that sense. And I think that's different, right? So I don't own the NASDAQ ETF because it's a broad-based, low-cost index ETF. In fact, it's not. It's relatively expensive fee-wise. It's not broad-based at all. It's all technology. That is an active decision for me rather than a passive one. For my passive ETFs, I do own global because I just think, I don't know. Is Hermes going to outperform NVIDIA? I don't know. Does L'Oreal beat Nike? I don't know. Uh, and I haven't done the work. So generally speaking, I'm happy to have the US and the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world, I should say it's not emerging markets. And I'd make that my basket. So that's what I've done. But I don't. I have no issues if someone decides to do something else. Yeah, there's, there's there's no wrong answer really. It's a question of taste and preference, and yep. we're all we're all trying to look into crystal balls at the end of the day. 
And you know, correct, yeah. it's it's hard it's hard to give an answer and opinion on this without revealing your own bias, mm. it, and um, not hard. It's impossible. And, yes. and <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. so if anyone out there is screaming, going, "No, no, you what you don't understand about Bolivia mm. or this," well, don't at me. Just do what you want to do, right? Yeah. Again, yeah. I will. We will see. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not even gonna. I'm not gonna. Certainly gonna bet my left arm on some of these opinions. But at, at the end of the day, you know, perfect is. Perfect is impossible when it comes mm-hmm. to investing. All, all I really want to do I mean, you is make sure like, besides us, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, really all <laughs> I want to do is get a fairly decent real rate of return after mm-hmm. inflation mm-hmm. over time that allow compounding to do its thing. If I'm on my deathbed and realize that if I'd only done this <laughs> or that, I could have got two or 3% extra. I mean, I'm not saying that wouldn't have made a difference. Yeah, absolutely yeah. it would have. But I, you know, I'm guaranteed that I'm whatever I'm doing now is not perfect. Guaranteed, right? And so- um, I just think I think sometimes uh, we we get a little bit too obsessed with trying to optimize that which is not optimizable. Yes. At least at least from the vantage point where we sit right now. And, and yeah, yeah. It, it'll be something. I guarantee you this, right? Mm. I, um, well, like I can't guarantee. You want to guarantee by <laughs> by a toaster? <laughs> but I suspect if history has any guide. <laughs> When our children, so mm. we've both got young kids, when they are our age, yes. they will be talking about companies that we don't even know. Yeah. They probably haven't even probably been founded yeah, yet. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Right. And they they will be companies that are just trillion dollar businesses that, you know, <laughs> making robots or, or augmented reality brain chips or whatever the hell that they're doing at that mm. at that mm. point in time. And, you know, and it's also you know, the future will unfold in really wild and unpredictable ways. So it's it's all it's all very 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 difficult. But yeah. um, I, I think I think you get the basics right. And this is yeah. what's interesting about so many of the calls uh, questions that we get. It's like everyone gets it right. Mm-hmm. We're, we're we're kind of splitting hairs at this at this end, which is fun, and we're happy to talk about it. But um, spend less than what you earn. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Spread it around. You'll be fine. I mean, we are we are doing both sides of our mouth a little bit, right? We pick stocks for yeah. a living because we're trying to get a little bit more than the market and we're saying but don't worry about Absolutely. it too much i mean both That's are true i think you, you, what yeah. you're really saying is 99 percent, maybe 90 percent, 95 percent, something like that of of the result is going to be the things we're talking about you can absolutely optimize if you can uh yeah. but but worse than worse than yeah worse than choosing incorrectly would be not doing anything because you're trying to work out which one's best and doing nothing while you try and work it out just just pick, pick one or both um and go with it you'll be very 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 happy with the outcome if you do it for long enough with a large enough savings rate Absolutely. I mean, go back to 2000 and say, hey, you need to invest all in this company that's going to sell books on the internet. Like, what? (laughs) Get real. Oh, that was Amazon. Okay, fine. Go back to 2010. Oh, this is magic internet money called Bitcoin. That's going to be the best performing asset class that the world has ever done. You're right. You know, like, it's just the world is mad. You can't make this stuff up. And it's just like, it'll be the same in another 10 and 20 years. It just just will be. So, um, you know, humility is important in what we do. Correct. Mate, let's finish with some questions from Daniel. We'll see if we can race through them. Uh, hey, Scott and Ram. I'm a massive fan, he says. I'm a member of Share Advisor and Dividend Investor. I've been listening to the podcast since around episode 50 with Ram coming, then going, and then the return of the Messiah that is the man, the myth, the legend that is Mr. <laughs> Andrew Property Page. <laughs> Love it. Daniel's trying to take my intros off away, away from me. The prodigal um, son. Returns. I actually bought yeah. Salt Patsy, says, as one of my first buys. Being, I've been sound in most purchases. But I've strayed outside the podcast tips and bought some speckies. In brackets, lost 95% in a day from a bad draw result. And some other purchases because I believed in a theme, aka Rare Earth, or a mate gave me a hot tip. 
in brackets, another loss. Although my portfolio is still up and dividends rock. However, I've now got to the promised land of 15 to 20 companies, not stocks, he says in brackets. I love that, Daniel. We buy companies, we don't buy stocks. With some ETFs from ETF Investor. And I'm now in a confused state. Oh, dear. And hope you can non-specifically give advice, but help your listeners. Here we go. A, I know you've spoken of not trading super and personal share accounts differently, but I'm having issues separating the fact that a lot of my super would be in the ASX 200. Furthermore, I have both Solpats and West Farms in my personal holdings, and I think they are quite a conglomerate in terms of ASX spread. So I'm having an issue following some of the ETF investor recommendations for an ASX ETF. Am I missing something? Or am I costing myself a balanced portfolio with this call? Uh, I'll drop this one first round because it kind of refers yeah, to a couple of yeah, stocks yeah, I recommended definitely. in bits and pieces. Um, I think you are missing something, Daniel, if I can say that nicely. Uh, Solpats and West Farmers are anything but representative of the ASX. If you're talking about a listed investment company like Afic or Argo, one of those companies that kind of tries to be kind of roughly very spread across the ASX, that'd be worthwhile. I'm not saying Solpats and West Farmers won't do well. I think they will. I think they'll both beat the market for what it's worth. But if you think about Solpats, they've kind of they got coal and telcos, some property and a brick business. Uh, it is very, very unrepresentative compared to the ASX. Similarly, West Farmers has uh, some lithium. It has an insurance business, some chemicals, Bunnings, office works, and bits and pieces. Uh, again, uh, not particularly representative. Now, they're conglomerates. That's great. They're internally diversified. That's great. And so that's, that's good in itself. But if you're saying, well, they're kind of the same as the ASX 200 ETF, I'd say, well, there's not a lot of financials in there. Funnily enough, SOP has considered, I think, a financial for... Um, or it's industrial. If you look up the, the se- yeah. sector classification, it's ridiculous. Financial, I think. Might yeah. be. Anyway. Um, but, you know, so, so if you think about, you know, do you have, do you have um, mining? No. Uh, is there any, uh, you know, CSL, News Corp? No. Uh, I mean, sorry, no, like there's, there's lithium, I suppose, in West Farmers. You have no iron ore in those. Uh, you have very little in the way of technology in those and so on and so on. So if you're saying I have a couple of diversified investments I'm happy with, then yeah, you could do that instead of an ASX ETF if you wanted to. If you said, actually, I want to have a representative sample of the ASX, then these two companies are anything but that. Um, so I would, I would probably just, again, choose what you want. No harm in having those instead of the ASX ETF for sure. But they're not, well, nowhere near the same thing in my view. Ram? Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with any anything there. I, um, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, there's, there's different requirements or mm. different, um, out, out there in the market, different people will be looking for different things. Yes. And yes. As, as, a, as a company, I know the full tries to sort of cater to a whole bunch of different people, whether mm-hmm. it be sort of, those looking for dividends or those mm-hmm. looking for ETFs. So, you know, and, and there's something for everyone that's yeah. kind of there. How you, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because what is appropriate f- for each person will depend on each person. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to sort of say what, yep. what is right or what is wrong because, you know, if I, I've, I've long said as a, the kind of investor that I am, mm-hmm. I mean, I would absolutely not balk at a subscription for an ID gen. Mm-hmm. Right? That, now, that might be very different to how other people would, would use the service. Who's right, who's wrong? Depends. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Just, just know, what, know what you're after. Be very clear. And I think too often people approach our industry going, well, I want to make money. Well, 
well, join the club, yeah. right? But you need you need know thyself before you know yeah, uh, anything else, right? It's just like let's get a little bit more specific mm-hmm. here on on things, and then you're in a better position to sort of say, well, what what would I look to take off the shelf when I when I look through the shop, and uh, how I combine that all together. This is the most waffly, non helpful answer I've ever given, but, but there it is. <laughs> I love it, mate. I love it. Um, let's go to the second question. Uh, it's uh, here we go. Having worked to get to the magical 15 to 20 individual companies level across a good and planned diversified array of sectors, nice work, based on some podcast advice, I then started increasing my holdings for my best idea at the time. What is proving difficult is each new recommendation from the fool gets me excited and I'm having non-buyer's remorse that maybe the new idea is better. I'm trying to be buy and hold for the long term. I didn't sell during the COVID crash. But the shiny new toy of the next buy recommendation is proving hard to psychologically ignore of what I believe is predominantly a great set of companies in my current holdings. I'm scared if I keep buying the new idea, I'll both miss out on gains in my current companies. I'll also have 50 plus holdings, which would be unmanageable. Any thoughts or tips? It's kind of what you were saying, mate, about you know, using the yeah. ideas and choosing the ones you, you have highest conviction over. Um, Daniel, I'll give you the, I'll give you the just account. apologies for those who don't care or, or aren't full members and I'm, this is not here to plug the service do whatever you want uh, but Daniel so there's two there's two ways you can do it mate um, we manage the scorecard as a scorecard and the scorecard is currently market beating which I'm pretty happy about uh, no promises for the future uh, we manage it as if members could buy every single recommendation when we recommend it and we'll tell you when to buy hold or sell and you can just simply follow along if that's what you want to do so 50 is unmanageable if you want to do your own research on all of them if you want to just follow along with what we're recommending, then you can do it and just buy when we say buy, sell when we say sell. If you want to do that, I'm not saying you should or anyone should, but if you want to, you can do that. That's how we run the service, right? It's literally that combination is what gives us our returns. So the, the simplest way to, to be a member of our services is just to go, I'll buy when they say buy, I'll sell when they say sell. Second thought is, and this sounds like I'm selling and I'm really not. We have other services that I would call portfolio services where we give you portfolio weightings and sizes and we tell you when we to buy and sell in a, in a weighted basis so effectively a model portfolio you can follow along with it costs more money you don't have to buy it. i'm not saying you should i'm just saying if you're kind of worried about you know the flow and you kind of feel a bit kind of drowning in the in the number of recommendations that's an option for you the third is what ram said is just simply make your own calls uh, and buy the recommendations that make most sense to you and build your own version from good ideas um, as much as i believe in all the recommendations that's why we make them uh you know you don't need to do everything with everybody uh you can just grab the ones that make most sense to you and build your own portfolio so that's that's how i'd address it ram do you have any additional thoughts to what you mentioned before yeah i like there's an idea i've been toying around with to um just from a software perspective so don't hold me to this it might amount to nothing but (laughs) i i i I think we all struggle with that Hmm. you know i often look at what i've got versus what i could have and Mm -hmm. then i think well this one hasn't played out i mean just i just i i I very much struggle from what they call the endowment effect of what what I what I own right now. I find yeah, exactly. hard to sell. I just yes, do, I'm the same. I'm the same. Absolutely you know, the same. You know, yeah. Something has not done me well mm-hmm. in recent times, but but I think what can be handy is get yourself a Google Sheets or Excel spreadsheet, whatever. Not to be complicated, but just write mm-hmm. down all the stocks that you're interested in, and then on one column write um, a confidence score like zero to 10, zero to five, whatever scale you want. So 10 being, I'm super high com- conviction on this. I just love this company. About the company or about the price or the value proposition? No, 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 what? no, about the about the, about company. the, the company. Right. How much okay, How much do I like this? Okay. You know, how confident I am of this? There are two things. A, it's around in the future and B, it's more prosperous at, the, at that point in time. Nice. Uh, you, you can get really down the rabbit hole if you really want to 
<laughs> be a, be technical with it. But I think, you know, just I don't, don't kiss, the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid, that, that, that kind of thing. So just confidence, conviction, whatever, whatever you want to call it, scale of one to 10. And the other column, do estimated return. Like what kind of return do I think is reasonable to get from this? And then just plot them out and you'll have this, this XY spread. So the top right of that chart, you'll have something that you think has the best return and you have the highest conviction on. And down the bottom left, like right near the origin, you'll have very low return expectations and very low conviction. And I think when you have them plotted out visually, I think it should make your decisions a lot easier because you go, huh, well, I've, I've thought about each of these individually without in reference. I just, yeah, I like CSL. I think it's really high conviction return, maybe not so good, you know, whatever happens to be. And then you'll, you'll see it just spread out there. And I think what it will tell you is like, well, if, if, if what I thought was true, I should really be weighting much more heavily the companies that are up towards the top right quadrant yeah. than, as opposed to the bottom left quadrant. Now, yeah. is this a perfect system? No. Is this going to be written up in the Journal of Finance? <laughs> no, it's not. I think we call it business school anytime soon. Yeah, it's not. But I mean, is it is it potentially a framework that can help you? Because again, and I, I know I, I, I whip this horse a lot, but it is opportunity cost, opportunity mm -hmm. cost, opportunity cost. There's finite capital. There's a gazillion mm -hmm. opportunities mm -hmm. that are out there. You've got to be selective. You don't need more than, you know, certainly 20, I, in my humble opinion, to be extremely well diversified. So, you know, this, you, need, you need some, and this is just me shooting from the hip a little bit here, but, but something like that, I think will help you lay it out. So as, as the fool delivers a new recommendation each week and read it, then put it on your spreadsheet, score it. I think, I think the return potential is like this and this is how much I like it. Yeah. And then contrast it against everything else. I, I don't know. <laughs> Have a play with that as a, as a concept. Work at how you feel is appropriate, but it might help you be a bit more objective in your thinking and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah, nice, mate. I like it. Hey, uh, questions. So your part, part two just to finish off with. Uh, Daniel asks, finally, I know this was asked before, but I have a question about the small odds. I cannot see how an ETF based on the small odds would provide returns. If a company becomes successful, then would it not leave the index? Meaning the index itself is inherently stuck at a similar size and value. Thanks for all your work over the years. Full on from Daniel. Thoughts, Ray? Yeah, I like, yeah, I like that. I mean... You could argue that as it goes from because there's what is the small let's define it first. It's the ASX. It's the all ordinary. So it's the all ASX ordinaries minus the two hundred. Okay, yeah. so it's yeah. the it's the two hundred and first to the five hundredth largest company. Essentially, yes. So so the argument could be that well, by the time you're up into the top five hundred, you're you're already in the top quartile of yeah. of all companies. Yeah. So. And, 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 and you've got to go a long way to get kicked out. So there's a lot of probably value creation for you to go hmm. into the small odds and then right, out right, of right. the small, on, in the right direction. On the way through, mind yes. You. yes. On the, yeah, not on the right. way out, <laughs> yes. but on the way through. Yes. There's, there's probably a huge amount of return there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't, that's just me mm. trying to be intuitive about this. I, I don't know what the actual answer is. There are a lot of companies that um, th these are all based on size. Oh, mm -hmm. sorry, technically size and liquidity. So you can yes. have very big companies that are very liquid and vice versa. So that their liquidity is a consideration here, but generally it's about size. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, I argue and have argued long that the biggest companies are usually the often the most boring and yep. least exciting. And not just from a, you know, strap yourself in, this is all about, you know, getting the <laughs> adrenaline bumping. I just mean from a return potential. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, uh, if I can just like d- delay for a second here and look at the ASX 20, what do we got here? We've got AMP, hard pass. Uh, major banks, hard pass, except for CBA. They've done nothing in the last five to 10 years. Uh, you, what else have we got? Um, CSL, QBE, Telstra. Hard pass, yeah. Telstra, hard pass. You know, like there's, they're, they're big, um, but yeah. gosh, they've been real. They've, if anything, they've been a drag on mm-hmm. the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's, there's something to be said for the smaller companies. The other thing I've often said too is that I think it's all relative. Mm-hmm. So I, as everyone knows, I love my small caps <laughs> and all oh, their tiny little come. Well, yes, put BHP next to it. And, you know, one's Jupiter and one's Mercury, right? Like I, I get it. But, you know, you take some of these quote unquote small cap companies, they are $150 million in market cap. It's not, it's not the, you know, pizza shop mm-hmm. on the corner. Mm-hmm. These are big businesses with tens of millions in revenue. Yeah. And like, you know, it's like, uh, and, and by virtue of, it's almost definitionally true that by virtue of their size, they have got f- far more growth potential. With size comes strength. I get that. Mm-hmm. And there's a risk factor to that. But in terms of potential, the return potential on some of these companies are just dwarf the other ones. So yeah. there's compromises always to be made. And there's a spectrum there of like, do I want ultra, ultra, ultra low risk? Well, that's fine if you do, but just be aware that you're going to mm-hmm. get Telstra-like returns. Um, or do I want something that's a bit riskier, um, but I've got a chance here of, of getting something that's a bit more exciting. And, and again, no right or wrong, know thyself and know what you're after and, you know, know, know what you're in for. Yeah. But, but, um, I don't know. What, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you could do, I think you could do a lot worse than, than having a, having a, a focus on, on the small odds. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm really torn, mate. Uh, we have in the past recommended members buy both a small odds and, and the ASX 300. Uh, yeah. to basically replicate the all lords. So you, you're kind of getting getting everything. Now, if you own both, then you get them as they leave one and into the other. So yeah. you're not really giving much up overall, in theory, as those companies make their journey through. The, the, what's fa- so I will say, by the way, the last five years, the uh, ASX run has massively outperformed the small lords. Now, it's possible that that's because of the uh, exactly the factor that we're being asked about, which is that the companies simply don't get big enough before they leave. I would suggest to you that we have um, over the last, despite your points about banks in Europe, absolutely right, mate. Over the last five years or so, the fact that the the bigger companies have done better than the smaller companies kind of talks to what's been happening right around the world, which mm-hmm. is that you know value has been accreting to those biggest businesses that have been you know, buying other businesses, have been using market power to maximize their profitability. Whether, I mean, the, in the US, we've talked before about the fact the biggest companies in the US are, are absolutely streeting the field for the S&P 500, right? If you take those out, the rest of the S&P 500 is kind of flat to down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, and frankly, the same is true of the ASX. So on one hand, you say, based on recent history, hey, the big guys, where are the game's at? I think that's reasonably fair to say. Uh, is it because uh, now, now the flip side as you said mate if you've got small companies that grow and then don't grow from there the, the medium sized companies that, that fill their niche think about 
I know we talk about a whole lot. Technology One or Dicker Data or some of those businesses. I, I don't really matter which ones they are. Um, but as they, you know, they they were not going to become BHP anytime soon. Yeah. So they're never going to be ASX twenty stocks because they just don't have the sheer market size and opportunity. So do I want those businesses when they're small and get bigger? Yeah. You know, the growth in Woolies over the last fifteen years has been great, but the growth before that was even better. Yeah. So I kind of want that that sort of small ordinaries growth. They're not they're not small companies by the way. They're the, you know two hundred first you said mate the fifth fifth five hundredth company out of two thousand. They're still big businesses. They're just not as big as the big guys. Um, I kind of want access to that growth. Uh, now, if if they don't get it because the big guys grow faster because they're big and the dynamics of capitalism happen to work out that they're getting prioritized and, and doing better, then yeah, you'd be better at the top end of the scale. At some point, to Ram's point, when you get four banks, two miners, other things, if they don't have the growth left, you don't want just that. You want to have others. And so my my view has generally been, again, think about being passive. If you buy an all odds ETF, I think you can, I don't, there are any all odds ETFs actually, um, but there's an ASX 200 or 300 ETF. There's a small odds ETF. Kind of whack those together, you get the all odds, you know, because it moves one and goes to the other. I wouldn't buy, so really clearly, I wouldn't buy the small odds only. I would buy the larger one only if I had to buy one or the other, but I'd happily buy both. I'd happily own both. I think that's where the opportunity is for me. Do you know the other thing? I just looked it up from S&P. So a quarter of the small odds is materials. That's the other problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's not, it doesn't give you, it doesn't give you sector diversification that people might be assuming. Well, you add in the energy sector on top of yep. that as well. If you just really want to take sort of commodity oriented companies and you've got like basically a third of your money is in think companies Correct. that dig stuff out of the ground. Correct. And, they, I know, look, here's the, here's the dichotomy here. Whenever you say what was the best performing stock over the last five or 10 years, it's always a materials company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, whenever you say what sector tends to underperform the market mm-hmm. every single time, it's the, it's the material sector. Now, how do you square that? Well, you have the lottery ticket that goes from 0.1 of a cent to $2. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So, you know, it's like there's a, there's a yeah. distribution there where you yeah. have a couple of lottery winners and a whole bunch of losers. And the lottery winners, are, they are the Fortescue medals that were, you know, penny dreadfuls that became big, <laughs> you know, ASX 50 stocks. Yeah. But, and they, they, the returns are so massive, so massive that they just drag everything else up. But, uh, and so maybe that's the argument. You put enough of them in there and you'll, on, on average, you'll, you'll go uh, sort of okay. Mm. But I, I tend to think, you know, once you're getting to this kind of level of, of nuance, Build your own ETF and just call it a portfolio, right? Mm. Like, mm. that's <laughs> it's kind of what we're doing as stock pickers, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, exactly. Yep. It's yep. it's a it's a um, exchange yep. traded portfolio, ETP, exchange traded portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, look, I, I said I, I think both works. Um, I, I'm, I, I, the only thing I want to mention, I guess, I suppose, at one level is if you'd have looked at the S&P 500 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and said, well, hang on, there's no technology companies there, therefore I'm not going to invest in this thing. You look at it today when the techs are the, techs are the big companies, the big guns. Uh, my reason for investing in ETS is not to play that industry level sector in or out stuff necessarily. Mm. Um, there is an ETF out there we've been asked about actually in a future question. Uh, it's an ETF which excludes mining and financials for exactly that reason, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about in another, another day. But um, I, you know, the fact that a sector currently has a certain, certain you know, you would have avoided the S&P 500 if you wanted tech, you didn't want to buy GE, General Motors, uh, Exxon Mobil, something, something, whatever they were, right? And yet, had you done that, you would have missed out on extraordinary gains because the littler businesses, not tiny, but little businesses in the S&P 500 went on to become the biggest ones. 
and and absolutely obliterated the the previous big guys in the process and you still made extraordinary wealth so i'm not saying that this will necessarily happen the asx but i would just say be a little bit careful about what you ignore or what you avoid because of the now we're all investing in the future not the not the not the present now if you could exclude those and if you could have said years ago i will take these big guys out and just invest in the little guys maybe you would have made some money doing it. i don't know but equally they had you had to know the future in hindsight it's obvious at the time was it that obvious no i don't know so mm. again it's that active versus passive in a ram's point once you start becoming active past a point you might as well say okay well now i need to do enough work to be able to value it in which case you're back in stock picking territory and that's probably the right approach for a whole lot of people if you're at that point of wanting to be more involved and more active and more more analytical which i think is great and brand thinks is great that's probably mm. the way to do it yeah yep Thank you for some great questions. We've got heaps more. I can't wait to get back, stuck back into them. But we are done for this week. Uh, mate, um, I know you'll be back from your run. You've been working for three or four hours. Probably time to have a, have a, have a rest and maybe head back to bed. You haven't been there for four or five hours by now, Sean. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of the afternoon power nap. Can I, can I just say? Like, I, oh, hashtag four-day four work week. <laughs> and I will rationalize that. Like, like you would not believe. I'll convince myself that I'm far more productive. The secret is the secret is no more than 15 minutes, right? Because then you just, you're going to be drowsy all afternoon. But look, I, can't, look I can't do afternoon. Yeah. Just when you start to you find you're nodding off a little bit, just put the head down <laughs> and then boom, back into it. There you go. I enjoy your power nap, <laughs> Mr. Page, and I will Thank see you, you next Friday. Until then, thanks for listening and for on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.